Let us pray together. Lord our God, we come to you this hour and we thank you and praise you for calling us into worship, for calling us away from our idolatry, the darkness and hardness of our heart and shedding forth your marvelous light. Oh God, we pray that your light would penetrate now into our hearts, that you would open our minds, that we might understand your word, that we might see Christ, that we might know him more, to love him and to serve him with all that we are. And we pray that you would be pleased to do this work in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to return to our series on the book of Revelation. I invite you to look at the 11th chapter with me. While you're turning there, I'll remind us all of the context of our passage and really of Revelation in general. We've seen right from the very start, for instance, that this is all about Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 1 of chapter 1. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. We know that this letter is written to give hope to the church. We see that in Jesus' words to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. And then we beheld all of the marvelous glory of God's throne room in chapters 4 and 5, especially as the Ancient of Days, God the Father hands over the scroll of divine justice to the Son. As Jesus begins to break the seals and to unravel the scroll, we see this in chapters 6 through 8, we, we see God Himself sealing and protecting his people. Even in the midst of his all-searching judgment, they are guarded and watched over and cared for. Now, as we come to chapter 11, this is the end of the second cycle of judgment, the trumpets. We must understand a very important feature of Revelation. We, We need to consider how the book is organized in general. We might ask the question, do all of these visions of judgment represent a chronological flow of history, or is there a better way of interpreting these strange symbols? I think that there is. I myself am persuaded by the recapitulation view. Simply put, the view maintains that the different cycles of judgment from chapter 6 through 22, the last great part of the book, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, the judgment on Satan and Babylon, It's all the same judgment of God upon history. It's simply viewed from different perspectives. The different visions are God's judgment, His dealing with evil in this world for the sake of His church, and it occurs from the time of Christ's first coming all the way until He returns at His second coming. One commentator put it this way, and I love the imagery of this. The overall figurative effect of this repeated patterning is that the reader is left with the impression of God's all-encompassing will being like an elaborate spider web in which Satan and his forces are caught. See, as we move through the book of Revelation, it becomes apparent there is no escaping God's justice, that he will accomplish his good and perfect plan. And I think that inescapable plan of the Almighty is ultimately what brings us hope. Because God will execute justice. His judgment will pour forth. His people will be vindicated. That brings us to our passage of Scripture today. We saw in chapter 7, it was a little bit of an interlude in between the 6th and 7th seals. You get all of that judgment and God says, whoa, 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 hold on. 
Let's get some comfort in the midst of all of these scary things. And we got the picture of God sealing his people with his very own name. A sign of protection, of uh, marking them off. And today we see a similar interlude, beginning in chapter 10, which we've already read, between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. It gives further credence that these are really the same judgment, just from different perspectives. And chapter 10 introduces this. It's John's recommissioning. We saw him getting the word back in chapter 1 or chapter 4, go and write this down. Tell the peoples, prophesy. We learn something very important in chapter 10 about his witness. Yes, the gospel is sweet, John. The word that you go and prophesy to people is salvation, healing in my wings. It's Christ coming upon this world to bring peace and goodwill to the earth. But it also has a bitter side effect. We'll see this. In chapter 11, as John records what it means to be a witness for the gospel. It is sweet, but it's also bitter. Let us turn our attention now to God's word to find out why it's bitter. I'll begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, This is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. But when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of, from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. A second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. 
Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. I don't get sick very often, and I thank God for that quite a bit. But I can remember, as a young child, every winter came, and every time I got a cold and a cough and some sort of crud that I probably brought home from schoolmates, and my mother was so faithful, sweet and loving as she is, to give me medicine. And I hated that medicine. I can still see the bottle and the shape of it. I can smell that repugnant smell and that nasty taste that turns my stomach still. It was Robitussin. (laughs) And I can't stand it. But I know that it's good for me. I I know that I needed it. I know that my mother was being sweet and caring as she is to try to help me, to bring about healing. But I just hated the medicine. I didn't like it. As a young child, it's not fun to be sick. You want to be out playing with your friends, enjoying the holiday break. I think this is a picture of what we have in our interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. Let's look back at our text now. We're going to see three things this morning. First, we'll notice who is witnessing. Then we'll notice how they are witnessing. And finally, why they witness. So who's witnessing, how they're witnessing, and why. Now, the imagery from the first three verses could be very confusing. It seems a bit out of place. All of a sudden, John is called up to measure the temple. Well, let's look at it again a little more closely. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Well, here, John, as he often does in this letter, is picking up from Old Testament language and imagery. He's alluding to Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. You need to understand a little bit about that. There, Ezekiel sees the picture of the new temple and goes on, Uh, seemingly for a long time, if you've ever read Ezekiel, a great detail about what the temple is to look like and how big it is and what's in it. John's picking up that idea here to say that God is indeed measuring, marking off, setting apart the temple. What we need to understand, though, is that in the Old Testament idea, in the Old Testament mindset, when you measure something, it's a fixed issue. God gives the measurements for the ark. It's a done deal. The rain is coming. He gives measurements for the tabernacle and the temple. They are to be built. It's a holy command. He gives the measurement for the new temple. It is a sure thing. It's coming. And we we know this from our own experience. It's like a baker. They set aside their ingredients ahead of time. They've measured them very carefully. We're not just going to toss them. We're going to use them. They've taken pains to measure it. They're going to use it. The same idea here is that God is taking care to measure and to set apart his temple. What's interesting, though, is that John picks up on this idea and the symbolism is that it's for God's people. It's not just the temple. It's the temple and those who worship there. 
God is measuring, much like he did in chapter 7, to seal and to set apart and to protect his people. He has taken measurements of his temple court, of his people. He has set them apart. But even more fundamentally, the idea is they're associated with his presence. Those who worship there are in his inner court, by the altar. And it's by God's presence that they will receive that protection. It's a beautiful picture that God again is sealing and marking off his people that they are indeed cared for and watched over. But what then are we to make of this outer court business that's looked over, that's set aside, that's not measured? Some in the history of interpreting Revelation have said that's much like those out in the world, the unbelievers that are to be cast off. Uh, But I think that's really a two-surface reading of the text. First, we need to understand that the outer court is equated with the holy city. We see that right there. But don't measure the outer court of the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to nations. They will trample the holy city. The holy city in Revelation is only used in reference to God's people or to that literal new Jerusalem one day to come. The outer court is still God's people, but what is What is John doing? What is he alluding to here? I think much like the the imagery coming from Ezekiel, the outer court is seen as a part of God's temple to belong to him, but it's the visible presence of the church now. The outer court, as it were, is our existence in this age. It's not fully protected. We see that, do we not? Our brothers and sisters around the world persecuted killed for their faith, coming very quickly to our lands. Does it mean that God doesn't love them, that he hasn't protected them? Well, no, obviously not. They are sealed and protected, but the inner court is their spiritual presence. It's their spiritual lives. They are guarded that even should we lay down our lives, even should we not hold on to our lives, that's language coming over uh, chapters 12 through 14, They didn't hold on to their lives even unto death. Our salvation is still secure. We still have the name of God. The world would say otherwise. Oh, these Christians, they're dead. They're dying off. The church is in decline. ISIS is on the rise. Muslims are the fastest growing religion, etc., etc. Seeming defeat. Salvation is secure. The holy city is marked off, though it be trampled for 42 months, and now we need to deal with this idea. I often wonder, I had to do a lot of reading this past week. What is John talking about with some of these uh, imagery, the the language of of dates and numbers and 1,260 days and 42 months? Well, it ended up being a lot more simple. I think he uses uh, imagery and symbolism often as Jesus did. It confounds the wicked and gives hope to the righteous. But Simply put, the 42 months in the Old Testament time in that era, the month was 30 days. So 42 months times 30 is 1,260 days. Or if you see in chapter 12, the the time of Satan's oppression is a time and times and half a time. That's one year plus two years plus a half is three and a half years, which is 1,260 days. And a light bulb went off in my head this week. But the point is this. The three and a half years or 1260 days or 42 months, however you want to shake it down, is still symbolic. It's figurative of the whole church age. 
We know this because when we look at chapter 12 and we see Satan and the beast rising up to make war on the woman and her child, that is Christ, he makes war on the church throughout the church age from the time of Christ's first coming to the time of his second coming. It's our wilderness, much like the 42 encampments of Old Testament Israel. It's our three and a half years of witnessing, bearing forth the ministry of the gospel, much like Jesus' three and a half years of earthly ministry. See, it's figurative language. It's not some special time marked off right before the end of the age, three and a half years of a particular persecution. After all, why would John be writing that to first century Christians who were going to die? It wouldn't help them or give them any encouragement. Why would he write that to us if it's just for a small segment of time at the end of the age? No, it's indicative of this whole age where we will suffer and be persecuted as Jesus himself espouses. They've hated me as a servant greater than his master. They've hated me. They will hate you. But take heart. I've overcome the world. So we see then that they're witnessing is for the entire church age. It gives even more credence to the idea that the two witnesses are not two particular people or groups of people, but it's the church. It's the temple. It's God's people. That's why they're connected with the imagery of the temple and God's presence. But we also need to understand from verse 3, why are they clothed in sackcloth? Why is the gospel a picture of sackcloth? Isn't the gospel good news? preacher? Well, it is, and that's why we read Revelation chapter 10. It's sweet in our mouth. It is good news, but also when we take it to heart, when we fully understand the depths of the gospel, it also is bitter. Why? Well, the imagery of sackcloth from the Old Testament helps us. There are two reasons, basically, why someone would take on sackcloth. One, because they're mourning in repentance over their sin or two, because they've had a loved one die. And John combines these two things right here in our text. Look at verses 4 through 6. We see that the witnesses, or the church, are given power through the the Spirit of God. That's the imagery of two olive trees in the temple, or two lampstands. Those are indicative of the Spirit's presence. But if anyone would harm them, beginning at verse 5... Fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no merry may fall during the days of prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. This is grim language. Does that mean you and I are to go out and to condemn and to strike the earth? Well, no, that's not for the gospel age. But if we were to take the time to go back and look at those first six trumpets, they're modeled after the plagues of Egypt. And that's exactly the language we see here. It's water turning to blood. Or the sky being shut up so that no light would shine. Or striking the earth with every kind of plague. It's a picture of God's judgment on this age because of sin. So witnesses, they feel the bitterness As Isaiah did, woe am I, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Beloved, we can't be ashamed of the gospel in this way. Those who need a savior are those who are dying, those who are sick, those who are broken by sin. 
We see God's judgment all around us. Just turn on the news. And and I want to be clear. I'm not saying that tsunamis and earthquakes and things of that nature come because one particular people group are more sinful than the next. That's not the way that God's counsel works. But I do think that judgments come, even natural disasters in this age, because of sin in general. Because of the brokenness and the fallenness of this world. It's to put right in front of us on the big TV screen of the nightly news You are created for more than this world. Why would you want to keep living in this age? Why would we long to prolong this life when every person we've ever known is going to die? We're grieving in sackcloth. We're understanding what reality really is like. No matter what our world says, let's just live for the moment. Let's just do what we want. It's all good. No, it's not. I don't know if you've been to the hospital lately. I go to the hospital quite a bit. It's, it's a great privilege of being a pastor. Folks calling you in a time of need to sit with them, to pray with them. I wonder if you stopped. It occurred to me last time I was in a hospital. I wonder if you stopped and thought about why people go to the hospital. Why we have doctors and nurses. Yeah, there's some good exceptions to this metaphor. Uh, a woman giving birth to a child goes there. It brings great joy and life into the world. Maybe a little minor corrective surgery. Okay, we're just not a skilled physician. But beloved, we go to the hospital because we're dying. And we think there may be a small chance if I don't go to the hospital, given enough time, this will kill me. That's why we go. Think about it in a little more casual of terms you've ever done remodeling on your home or small do-it-yourself projects, there's a very fine line between what you can accomplish. Oh, I think I can paint a room. I can hang some drywall. I can do this. I'm not so sure about electrical work. I don't want to be electrocuted. But the picture here is that we are dying already in this age because of sin. So that's the who of the witness. We're people who are bearing witness to the truth of reality. But how do we bear witness? This is important for us to understand. It's basically verses 7 through 14. I'm going to do a little bit of summary work here for the sake of time. It's a long picture, but it's really the model of Christ's ministry. How we are to witness to this world is the same way in which Christ himself witness to the world. I'll read bits and pieces of these verses now. When they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street. Notice where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, now that's not an exact picture. Jesus laid in the tomb for three days. But for three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages will gaze at their dead bodies. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. It's a picture of Jesus' earthly ministry. That Jesus came to this world to seek and to save the lost. That he came not because everyone was healthy, 
but because the sick needed a doctor. And here's a, here's a hard one we don't often like. It bears forth with the bitterness of the gospel. He came not to bring peace, but a sword. But you see, the war that Christ was raging was against Satan and sin and death. So he himself bore the penalty. Beloved, that's the picture of our lives. We bear the penalty. Not in a salvific way as Christ does. We are counted righteous only for Him, not for our own sake. But then what are we called to do? Take up your cross. Go into the world. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the picture. Even unto bodily death, are you willing to die for the gospel's sake? To make a stand on the witness That this world is broken. This world is dying. That we need a Savior and His name is Christ. I'll be candid with you. That troubles me. I often wonder, would I be bold enough if someone were to come to me today and say, I'm going to kill you if you claim to be a follower of Christ? What would I do? That's the picture of Revelation. That's the picture of the church. You see, we are a hospital. You ever thought about that? I love that imagery. It's not mine. I'm not that clever. We're a hospital. We're a place where people come to be healed because they're sick and they're dying and they're lame and they're broken. And we have to do justice with that reality. As bitter as it may be, this world is broken and it's fallen and we are condemned in this age. The wages of sin is death, and we are all going to die unless Christ beats us back. That's a reality that no one wants to deal with in our world. No one likes to talk about death. It's not fun. We don't, we don't want to think about that. And I, I think the only way forward is to understand why we witness. That's what we see in the last part of our chapter beginning in verse 15. Beloved, this age is condemned. We see all the judgments. We see it in the seals. We see it in the trumpets. We'll skip over the bowls next week, get to the good stuff. But we see judgment coming, even in our midst, befalling people, seeing loved ones die, seeing people given over to horrible diseases or loneliness or brokenness. We could go on and on. But listen to verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I can't get Handel's Messiah out of my head. Beautiful setting of that text. But I think we miss something if we just skim through the words or have the melody in our head. The language there is so important. The kingdom of this world, it means this literal world. I know that we're we're steeped in a lot of symbolism here, a lot of figurative language. This is literal language, beloved. The kingdom of this universe, when Christ returns, will become his dwelling place. Not heaven somewhere out in the ether. This world. I don't think he'd mind me sharing this. 
I spoke with Brian Bolt yesterday. He's doing very well. Wanted me to give you all his love. Thank you for the prayers. Thank you for the encouragement. He says, that was so poignant. Praying for my brother. He just lost an eye due to surgery. But to say, Brian, take heart. You will have new eyes. And it's not a trite saying. You will have a new body. We're created and designed for more than this crummy world. Those of you who have afflictions of the body know this particularly well. The more that we live in this age, the more we break down. Do you have hope beyond hope? Do you have belief that the kingdom of this world will be the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign here forever and ever, and you will have a new body. It's the only reason why any of us would ever lay down our lives for the gospel. I am firmly convinced you will never be bold enough. I will never be bold enough to bear witness to Christ in the face of death unless I truly believe that there's a new heaven and a new earth, and I will have a new body, and God will be with us himself, and he will be our God, and we shall be his people forever and ever. That's what's coming. That's chapters 19 through 22, and beloved, we are getting there. But I want to leave you with this thought as we end today, as we consider why, why we witness. Look at with me at verse 19. Close of the chapter. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. God's presence is there, unmitigated, unfiltered. He is there. The ark bears witness to his very literal presence. Heaven is opened, and his people are there. As they have been guarded and protected spiritually, though their bodies may die one day, we will actually be there. That's the reason why we witness. But we need to first realize that our witness as the church is that we're all dying people in this age. And I think a good application here. We've, we've missed a lot in the gospel, myself included. We've, we've got a little topsy-turvy when we think that the church is the place that we go to. Church is what we do. Church is where I go. Brothers and sisters, church is who you are. The world is where we go. You are the temple of God. His majestic, spotless measured, sealed, protected dwelling place. And one day, he'll really physically be here. But until then, we need to act more like EMTs. We need to get out there. We need to start saving. Talk to any EMT, any medevac pilot. They'll tell you, minutes make a difference. Do we feel that immediacy with the gospel? It's not fun telling people that they're dying that we're broken in sin. But a good way to approach that with anyone is to tell them how much you need church, how dependent you are upon Christ and God's presence. It's a wonderful, beautiful way to begin a gospel conversation. I can't go seven days without being here. I feel like I'm dying. Do you feel that way?